Welcome to Noble Warrior. This is a place where entrepreneurs talk about what it takes to create a life of meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. We're gonna talk about mindset, mental models, actionable tactics, such that you can take everything that's shared here and go out and create a life of meaning and fulfillment for yourself. My name is CK Lin, former biomedical engineering PhD researcher, director for the University of California, startup executive turned startup executive mentor. I've been on a quest to understand what it takes to have a life of meaning and purpose. My next guest, he is a sales keynote speaker. He's the author of Better Selling Through Storytelling. He is a TEDx speaker with over 1 million views on YouTube. He is the course creator of Better Selling Through Storytelling at GoFromInvisibleToIrresistible.com. He's known as the Pitch Whisperer. Please welcome John Livesey. Thanks, CK. How was box breathing for you? It's great. I love the fact that you've set an invention and ground. I tell people that it's such an important thing to do before anything, whether it's a meeting to pitch or a date or an important phone call. We have to be in the present moment to be fully present. Do you have any uh, practices that you use yourself as a way to? get present in the moment? Because I know that you have a very busy life, you have a lot of things on your calendar, you're highly sought after. What are some of your practices as a way to be present for yourself? What any Cuddy Ted talk about just holding a superhero pose? Did you think that or heard about this? Mm-hmm. And there's all the research behind it that your testosterone goes up even if you're a woman and your cortisol stress level goes down. And Doctors do it before surgeries, and if you shoot some bath, you can up in that pose for two minutes, you'll shoot more bath there. So a lot of people think, oh, that two minutes is a long time to hold it. So what I've done is add my own recipe to that, which is I work with my clients on stacking their moments of certainty. I have them write down three or three times in their life when they knew they nailed something, whether they got a job offer or they had a goal happen or they got some great feedback from somebody. And when we program our mind, we put that in our head, kind of like airplanes are stacked at the airport by the aircraft control people. <clears throat> You're stacking those moments with certainty while holding the superhero pose, and then you go live. Mm. It's a real way to boost your confidence and make sure that those fear thoughts are not taking over. When you are thinking about these uh, moments where you have certainty, so say more about how you actually do that in, in terms of that emotionality aspect of it. Two things you touched on. As a speaker, it's my job to tap into all the different ways people process information, whether it's visual, kinesthetic feeling, or auditory. So I have to make sure that I'm not just staying in my little quick spot, which tends to be visual, but also phrase things in a way that people who are auditory, like, like something you could do, does that sound like a journey you would like to go on? Or when we trust our gut, we have more confidence. So I'm using a lot of variation in that, speaking to a big group because not everybody is the same. And so what I do with my clients is not only do I have them write down those moments, but I have them write down a feeling associated with that. So when I won, a gold medal when I was a kid, I felt proud. When uh, I got hired in this job, I felt elated. So if you're stacking not just the thoughts, but the feelings that go with it. 
that you want to be feeling as you go into your next big meeting or do whatever it is. I asked that question because I'm an INTJ. For those of you that don't know what that means, is in the Myers Briggs personality test, out of the 16 of them, INTJ is the most, one of the most cerebral ones. So, <laughs> so I, as an INTJ, I think I look at the world through systems and processes, but in terms of emotions, actually, it's a skill that I have to actively cultivate. So, I'm curious to know from your perspective. Have you ever dealt with any INTJs who's like super cerebral, but at the same time who's, who wants to cultivate this uh, skill set of being a better speaker, a better storyteller? It actually happened to my sweet spot. My ideal client tended to be very tech-oriented and left brain-oriented and very well-educated and smart in the technology of how something works. And that can include not just selling a medical tech device, but also architects. They're very much into square footage and <laughs> all that, that brain stuff. Yeah. And they had an interview coming up. They were told, one of my clients, um, they're going to get hired the firm that they liked the most because the project took six years. Not who had the best team. Nice, because they felt like we could all do the work, otherwise you wouldn't be in the final three. And that's when I was called in to help that team work on their likability. And they, because they literally didn't know where to start. All right, perfect. Great. Pause. So speaking to the younger CK who is super cerebral or these the clients mm -hmm. of yours, very cerebral who thinks that, hey, my work should speak for itself. Let me just mm -hmm. focus on delivering the information. Let me just deliver it like a professor. For someone like that, how do you coach them to tap into their emotions? their elation, their enthusiasm, mm. and so forth. Yes, sometimes I have to get them out of their head in a variety of ways. And so I just keep asking questions until I get them to describe an experience where they are not feeling something. So one of my clients, Cole, he was very left brain, rebuilt, former military guy, and he, was, he had trouble delivering his pitch with any passion. And he loved playing soccer. And so I said, what does it feel like when you kick that ball and you hit, make the winning goal? And finally, he started having a little enthusiasm in his voice. And so I used that as a frame of reference to say, you need to bring that same feeling when you're talking about this project. And so they had some frame of reference to just categorize. Lewis and I have complete empathy for this because when I was in my 20s, the first time I went to therapy, the therapist said, just once in this hour, try to start a sentence with my feel instead of my think. And I was like, oh, I wasn't aware I was doing that. And it was like literally a new feel. Uh, can I see all those pictures of all the feelings so I can figure out which one I am in touch with? Because EQ, emotional intelligence, is not typically taught in school. There's all kinds of research for you left brain people, that proves that you are actually more successful with a higher EQ than your IQ. Yeah, for sure. For the younger CK, the cerebralists that are listening to this, I wanted to underline something. There's nothing wrong with the way that you are. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about here is about effectiveness because the rest of the world may not be as cerebral as you are if you want to tap into 
who they are as a human being if you want to connect with them, connect with their emotions. So one. Two, we're not also not asking you to artificially be someone else. Be a court jester or someone that you're not. We're, all we are asking you to do is to tap into the emotion that makes you excited, that makes you passionate. That have you be like, oh, that's why I do the thing that I do. So that you can connect with that. Yes, being your authentic self is key, but you also want to work on being the best version of your authentic self, as opposed to saying, oh, "This is who I am. I can't change." I believe everyone can improve on a lot of different skills. But I think what I've learned about myself that might be helpful for others is that part of the reason we like to lead with data and facts is because we don't want to be vulnerable. We're not sure it's safe. To let anybody in to our inner world, so it, what that does is it prevents intimacy on any level, business or personal. When you don't let people in and know that you're scared, frustrated, angry, sad, and so the first step is you have to figure out what you're feeling, then be able to express it in the moment as opposed to holding on to it for two weeks. So, you know, when you said that, that hurt my feelings. But that made me mad. And then you have to realize that when you express feelings, it doesn't mean that everything gets destroyed. That's, I think, a big fear a lot of people have. If I really told the person how I felt, it would end the relationship as well, making it closer. Therefore, I'm just going to stick to the facts and figures. And unfortunately, not only does it not build intimacy, nothing you say is really memorable. And the best way to Connect with people is to show you don't have it all together all the time, and to take down your map. Yeah, for sure. I I love that we had the dynamics, the recovering cerebralist and someone who's a coach who coaches <laughs> cerebralist. So that's really great. From my personal point of view, having a podcast has been a tremendous journey for me because. In the beginning part of my journey in episode one, it was a, a lot about let me just present my best self and let me just hide mm-hmm. you know, the highlight reel of who I am versus actually mm-hmm. being a human being. So, so in the beginning, if you go back and listen, it sounds a lot like this monk from the mountaintop coming down and just share like, the solutions, the wisdom that I figure out in the world. And then at episode, I'm about 90 episodes in. And it actually, I can get to actually have fun with you and be a human being mm-hmm. and just show, hey, I think all human beings, none of us are perfect, but all of us are imperfectly perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever journey that we're on is whatever journey that we're, that we're on. So I so appreciate you sharing that. When I was working on my TEDx talk, the expert I hired who's a specialist in giving a TEDx talk, which is very different than giving a talk in front of a sales team, which is what I normally do. He said, your met is your method. Uh, oh. So that journey to discover where you've stumbled, where you, you don't want to share, or those feelings that you normally don't talk about becomes part of your message, because that's what pulls people in. And I think that was a big aha for me. I remember once I had been in a car accident and I had to wear one of those neck braces and um, a friend of mine was performing and I went, I was going into the theater to 
hear her singing, I thought, oh, I'm going to take this off. I don't want to draw attention to myself. And my doctor says to me, are you crazy? You're supposed to wear that to keep your neck from getting worse. <laughs> and what was going on in your head? Oh, I didn't want to look not perfect. I didn't want to, oh, what happened? I, I just wanted her to the best version of me, even if in fact that wasn't the case. So that I was, it's been a big learning curve for me to let people go, oh, yeah, this is what happened. Uh, I'm flawed. When I go back, when I was in college, I had a job at an airline in the summers working as a ticket agent when we needed extra help. And back then, they would judge us on our appearance. We literally get graded. Are your feet fine? Is your hair the right length? Is your tie tied properly? On and on and on. And uh, I was lifeguarding in the morning, and then I go do that job at night. And then I went to college, and I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago and went to school down in Champaign Urbana. And then they reached out to me when I came home during the holiday break and said, Hey, busy time, we can have you come back in. And I was so insecure, CK, that I thought, Oh, I don't have a tan. Like I did in the summer. And I gained 10 pounds from being, you know, freshman 10. They're not going to, I'm not going to be enough. I was totally putting my self-worth on my appearance and not my skills as helping people get their bags checked with them. And once that becomes your thing, your lesson to learn until you heal it, you just keep replaying it in different scenarios. The point where I was working with the Condé Nast, which publishes a lot of fashion magazines, GQ, Wired, Vanity Fair, Vogue, etc. And you were expected to look like you'd stepped out of the pages of those magazines when you were in the hallway and making sales calls with your clients. So I was like, uh, I just went from one place where I got judged by my parents to the next. <laughs> Okay. At what point was the awakening moment for you to realize this environment doesn't really cultivate my self-image? It's not a place that I want to stay any longer. Mm-hmm. Was there an awakening moment for you to realize that at some point? There's a story, of course, not for the moment to have any context. So I'm at my career finding that doing really well. 2008, the economy tanks, they lay off 30% of the staff in New York and everybody in an outside office when I was in LA at the time. And that was a big, you know, jolt. Anytime we get disrupted, job loss, death of a loved one, divorce, moving, it makes you pandemic, uh, makes you sort of stop a little bit. And I thought, wow, I've got to reinvent myself and learn how to sell digital ads, not just print. And a friend of mine said, look, I don't like silent movie stars. Some of them made it to talking and some didn't. And I went, huh, all right. So that gave me some, I lost my job, but not my identity was my first moment of that. And then ironically, two years later, I got rehired back and ended up winning salesperson of the year for the entire company. And I would say that was the defining moment when I went, I'm the same person, but I'm getting laid off and winning this award. 
I've got to get off this self-esteem roller coaster. I'm only feeling good about myself if I'm winning things and my numbers are up and bad about myself if I'm not making my quota or getting it off. And so that's been part of the journey. And I, I think one of the things I really want to tell the younger version of both of ourselves is it is a, you don't really ever rely on one thing and go, okay, got that video. I'm never going to have that issue come up again. It just comes up in different forms. I remember when I was speaking at the Coca-Cola Summit the first time, and I was looking at the other speakers, and the imposter syndrome kicked up. And I was like, ooh, I didn't go to an Ivy League school. My book is on the New York Times bestseller, like all these other speakers, and all my not good enough stuff comes up. And then I realized, wait a minute, I'm not hired to quote me an underwear model. Nobody cares how I look as a speaker. They are concerned about my content. And then I thought, well, do I care where a speaker went to school or do I care how many books they sell? No. I care about how I feel, listening to them, when I touch, do I learn anything? And then I went, ah, that's why I got picked. And so, it, it's so insidious, this fear, ego, judgment stuff of ourselves that we can feel like you're not enough with your appearance. And then you heal that a little bit, and then it comes up in another way, in this case, the imposter syndrome. So hopefully that's helpful. Definitely. It's what you're addressing is the human condition, right? Mm. By, through evolution biology, we are social animals. And in, in, in any kind of social organization, the egoic mind wants to know where do we stand in the hierarchy of things? <laughs> What's our status? In, in a athletic community, it could be your athletic ability. In, a, in terms of entrepreneurial community, it could be your net worth. Jeff Bezos, when he speaks, you know, standing in front of a crowd, and everyone knows he's the alpha because you know, his is worth of whatever billions of dollars and whatever but so we our, our survival instinct is always trying to jostle do we belong do we am i gonna be isolated and and, and then what i die right this is a very primal instinct that we have so i'm curious to know as you are now aware of this internal grappling how do you calm yourself down in the, in, the, in the event where the imposter syndrome is being triggered? In the event where, oh my God, they're more beautiful or whatever than I am. Mm -hmm. What methods do you have as a way to, again, come back to the center and neutrality? One method mm -hmm. is somewhat intellectual, so you might like this. <laughs> which is realizing that the fight or flight response that you were referring to earlier, uh, uh, where do we fit in the hierarchy? That's what causes so many people to have a fear of thinking. Because our primal brain wants to be part of the tribe and the herd. And if you're separated from the herd, that's when you get picked off in the jungle. And so when you stand up as part of an audience, your brain's going, the herd's out there. You're all up here by yourself. If you're doing this, is not safe. So just that awareness is part of my method. 
And I talk about, we get butterflies in our stomach. So I go back to what is physically going on. Adrenaline's being released. And I tell people the goal isn't to get rid of the butterflies in your stomach, but to get those butterflies to fly in formation. And when we get the negative energy out of our stomach and into the room by making a gesture, and we get out of our head worrying about whether people like us or not, then we come back to our intention is not here to serve and help and inspire and give them some new tools, then the nervous energy shifts from being scared to being excited. We just go, oh, game on. This is my Super Bowl moment. This is my Olympic moment. And everything's on full alert. Because the difference between being scared and excited is very subtle, and it's about us to reframe and label it what we want. Yeah, I like that. I was doing a lot of research before our interview today, and I was watching a lot of different talks that you actually made. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorites is the one where we, when you actually talked about your move, mm-hmm. how life was an adventure, right? Before yeah. you moved from LA to to Austin, can you maybe tell that story? And I want to go in deeper on you know, on the, 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 the maybe the mechanics how you actually deliver that story. So. Tell us that story. <laughs> I decided that I wanted to change where Act 3 was going to take place. Again, I think it's of everything as a story, and we're the uh, director of our own movie, and we can recast it, we can change the location. And uh, since I didn't have a job that I was going to every day, like I did so many years in LA, I could live anywhere. I looked at a lot of different places, and when I landed on Austin for variety of reasons, not just because it's less expensive and no taking on tax but to buy, keep it weird, uh, a lot of tech startups, a lot of music, great food, all of those things, no winter that are cold with snow, um, were part of that process. But moving to a place you've not really spent time at and don't know a lot of people that is a bit of an adventure. And I also wasn't even sure when I should sell my place in LA. Or should I wait till, till spring in March? And I said, no, we're not having that. Brainstorms, I'm gonna put it on the market in, in January, and then I don't know how long it's gonna take to sell. So I'll figure out where I'm going once that happens. It could be months. But it happened to sell in two days. And I thought, oh, I gotta be out in 30 days now. So I've got to figure out where I'm going to land, and I was looking at some places downtown, and I thought, eh, I'm not sure for that kind of money, maybe I could yeah, rent a house, and then I found this amazing condo to rent across from a 300-acre park. And I thought, huh. And the woman says, well, this won't stay, you're coming to visit in February, but it won't be available then. And she showed me on her phone, Facebook, you know, well, what the place looked like, and I bought it, literally, I released it literally sight on the scene. So that whole process of selling a place, and there's all kinds of bumps in the road where a seller might want to back out, and you're like, and how do I adjust to that, and how do I stay flexible and fluid through the whole process, and then again, just trust that it's all going to work out, was the journey of that adventure. 
Yeah. And of course, now with the pandemic, people go, wow, you had timing to get out right before all that hit, and you landed, and you couldn't do a three day car drive from uh, LA to Texas with your sister now, it wouldn't be the same. And uh, it wouldn't be hard as hell. So all of that, because now the analogy is like Indiana Jones with Harrison Ford, you know, being chased by that boulder. And the way I feel um, that it was happening, literally March 1st is when my lease started here, and shortly after that is when it started shutting down. And I was like, wow, that was amazing. And it was about trusting my gut, I would say. Not that I'm able to see the future, so it's, it's been a bit of a challenge because moving is stressful and not knowing a lot of people is stressful and then trying to make new friends when people are not going out and things are closed. So it's been a little bit of a double whammy, but now about six months or more into it, it's become a, a way to go, okay, I can still, whether I was in LA or not, I would still be having Zoom calls with my friends. Everything's changed. And the LA I knew doesn't even exist anymore. A lot of restaurants have closed and are coming back. So I think when things change, whether it was being laid off from my job or leaving LA after all those years, that we can't look back because what we're missing doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah. I'll tell you why I like this particular talk that you did. One is the subject matter, right? You talked about a lot about letting go, surrender, serendipity, right? And these are all subjects that I'm interested in these days. And there, so in my mind, there's a lot of wisdom in that. And also juxtaposition on top of what we're dealing with the pandemic, right? A lot of people are now reinventing themselves, reinventing their life, reinventing the relationship, reinventing where they live. So that's also very interesting. And I also love the way that you, how you deliver it, because it's in, from my point of view, it's the most relaxed that you are. Because mm-hmm. I know you do different kind of talks, right? The sales mm-hmm. talks in front of the media, TV, right? Uh, and then and, and this is the most relaxed. And this, from my point of view, is the most authentic. You're just mm-hmm. you know being who you are. You didn't really not care. It's not the right word, but you're the most relaxed. Is is basically what I'm trying to say. Well, that's progressively on my speaking career. That talk is more recent than the TEDx talk. So that part of the goal as a speaker is to let more of your mess in, your message. You get, the more you do anything, you get more and more comfortable and relaxed in it. It's like learning how to drive a car. I remember my dad used to take me out to the church parking lot and uh, let me practice starting and driving and car out and before I went to driver's ed school. And then I went to driver's ed school and uh, got the permit. And he said, okay, we're sitting in the driveway in the car. And uh, well, I had this checklist that I had to do before I start the car. Go check the mirror. Got to go, oh, for God's sake, just start the car like we have a hundred times. You're overthinking it. You know, do I put the key and then my phone accelerator? And so any skill, whether it's speaking or driving, or whatever it is, continues to get to the place where we're so confident that the confidence flows, which allows us to be more relaxed. Perfect. I, I love that. So we do talk about the four stages of learning, the un- unconscious incompetence, to conscious mm-hmm. incompetence, to the conscious competence, to the unconscious competence. So I love that you talk about that. So if you don't mind using this particular talk and actually dissect 
how you come about this. I think it would be very educational, very informative for anyone else who's listening to us. Uh, someone who's the younger version of John in CKs who says, oh my God, I'm a cerebralist. I think I have a story. Mm. How do I pick a topic? How do right. I find the beats of the story? How do I right. go from conscious incompetence to mm-hmm. conscious confidence? Right, let's maybe talk about that a bit. So if you don't mind going from the very top of why you want to deliver this talk to, yes. what, to the topic selection and so on and so forth. So we can narrow it down accordingly, if you don't mind doing that. No. Since you're a cerebralist, I'm going to give you something you probably like, which is... <laughs> um, I reverse it. I'm a recovering cerebralist. <laughs> <laughs> I reverse engineer my talks. Yes. So I write down these three questions. Mm-hmm. What do I want the audience to think? What do I want the audience to feel? And what do I want them to do? Mm-hmm. And I work on the ending of my talk first. I answer those three questions. I'm like, oh, okay. I want them to feel inspired. I want them to think that they shouldn't be afraid of change. And I want them to look at their own life and see how they could reframe something as an adventure as opposed to just resisting any form of change, whether it's moving or losing a job or whatever. And then I work on my opening. And that probably is what I spend the most amount of time on, whether it's my book, my edit talk. You've got to grab people in that first 90 seconds and pull them in with why they shouldn't care to listen. And so don't waste time with thank you for this opportunity. I'm excited to be here. Don't waste time by saying I'm going to tell you a story. Jump into the story. And then I, now that I have my opening and my closing, I write down what are my three key takeaways. And ideally, they're some kind of alliteration. What if life is meant to be fast and fluid and flexible? And then I craft stories under each of those bullet points. And then within crafting a story, there's a structure to what that story has, and we can get into that if you want, but I think that's a good place to pause to give you a sense of the overall structure, yes? Which is what you were asking Yeah, no, I, I really love that. Design from with the end in mind, what do you want them to think, what do you want them to feel, and what do you want them to do? Is that accurate mm-hmm. recap? Yeah. Correct. Yeah, with that in mind, and then what are the three main takeaways? alliteration and so forth mm-hmm. so, so say don't forget the open. oh that's right that's right you said you said the hook right yeah there's, there's a lot we can go there so let's actually emphasize underline the importance of having a good hook uh, one of my mentors he said the internet right the world today is you, know, you have an infinite shelf of possibilities how do you stand out from that. So I'm curious to know, when you are thinking about the hook, the opening, how do you, how do you, what goes in your mind as a way to stand out? Because one may say, a few different schools of thought, right? One may say just be loud, <laughs> be crazy, but that's not your brand, that's not what you do. So I'm curious to know. Right. You know, open with a joke, unless you're Jerry Seinfeld. That's right. I, I wouldn't recommend that. That's right. <laughs> that's right. So, 
what would you say to someone who, who may have all these things? You know, they are clear about think, feel, and do. They are clear about maybe the main mm-hmm. lessons, the wisdom. How do you help them stand out in the infinite in the source shelf of the internet? Well, you know, Plato said storytellers rule the world. Mm. That's even more relevant today because he didn't have to compete against the distractions of the internet. But when mm. he was saying that, so I am a firm believer that stories are memorable and it also lets people into your story. When you become a great storyteller, people see themselves in the story with you and you're no longer having to worry about am I being loud enough or using all these gimmicks to pull people in. The story, a good story, has a certain structure to it I'm happy to go into. And when you use that structure, people lean in and want to hear what's next. It's perfect I'm speaking to a speaking, a storyteller coach a uh, master storyteller and someone who aspired to be a storyteller. It wasn't until very, very recently, because for the longest time, I thought to myself, I'm doing this podcast because I'm a curious person, I'm just an interviewer. And it wasn't until uh, just a few months ago, really, a friend of mine told me that, hey, CK, you're a storyteller. And that blew my mind, because I'm, like, mm-hmm. I'm just asking questions. What do you mean I'm a storyteller? you ask questions as a way to draw out the story within your guests mm-hmm. that makes you a storyteller I was like oh I never thought of it that way so ever since then I am learning the mechanics of storytelling so I read books like story by Robert McKee I was looking at other master podcast hosts and how they tell their story how they draw the best the Howard Stearns, the Larry Kings, like the Cal Fussman, and all these, and Tim Ferriss, all these people that I admire. So I'm curious to know, what would you say to someone like me, who is an aspirational storyteller, who may not be well-versed in the unconscious confidence stage in, in, in telling stories better? First I would say, The myth that storytellers are born and it's just a natural skill that you either have it or you don't is not true. Anyone can learn how to tell a good story. Now, the level where you get to is up to you and how much practice you have. And the fact that you prepared so much for this interview shows me you've got the skills. Arthur Ashe, the famous tennis pro, said, the key to success is confidence. The key to confidence is preparation. And I know that was one of my keys to my sales career the amount of preparation I did compared to other people. And when I interviewed Dave Samet on my podcast, he called me a journalist. It was like, it was like somebody calling you a storyteller. Journalists? Yeah, podcasts are for journalists. And you did more preparation than any other podcast. So of course, you asked me about my book. So I know what you feel like when you're like, what? I'm a journalist? Or what? I'm a storyteller? So it's just opening ourselves up to all kinds of possibilities instead of thinking of ourselves as I just do this. Especially with my background in ad sales, the editors and the ad sales people were not allowed to talk to each other because they didn't want a, a car company who was advertising to go to the sales room and say, hey, tell the editors to put our car on the cover of the magazine. So it was church and state. And ironically, you brought up Cal Fussman, who's a good friend of mine. 
he has a wonderful podcast called Big Questions. And he interviewed me on that show because he used to be a journalist at Empire and I was selling ads for competitive magazines. So we broke down and he interviewed Gorbachev and he said, let's break down that wall like Gorbachev did with Reagan between advertising and uh, editors. He said, I now have to sell myself, John, as a salesperson and I don't know how to sell. I said, oh, but you know how to ask good questions. And selling is nothing more than storytelling. And so that whole interview, I worked with him on all the stages of what a sales call is from building rapport, like he had to as a journalist, to uncovering a need with the, it was all about questions, to presenting something in a story format, what he would write. And his big aha moment was using storytelling to overcome objection. And then of course, closing the sale, Arthur Ashe, no, not Arthur Ashe, excuse me, Abraham Maslow, the psychologist hired your needs, he said, if the only tool in your toolbox is the hammer, you tend to go around looking for nails to hit. So salespeople think, well, I just got to keep asking, you want to buy, you want to buy, you buy. But when you tell a great story, the question simply is, does that sound like the kind of journey you'd like to go on? And so that was mind-boggling for Cal and then we actually shared a stage together at that Coca-Cola CMO summit I was talking about on his emphasis on asking the right questions and mind on telling those stories and combining them together. That was quite a wonderful event to go to. Yeah, I love that. So anything else? So one thing is be open to a new identity. So in my case, all of a sudden I'm a storyteller. It's like, oh, I didn't know yeah. that. Boom, right there. So be open to a new identity. In your case, you're a journalist. What other tactical or framework or even mindset things would you advise someone who is an aspirational storyteller? So yes, storytelling is a learnable skill. I truly believe that too. I believe that we can learn anything. And we do have maybe some people may have the affinity for joke telling or storytelling or something, but, but everything can be learned. So there's that. Be open to a new identity. Anything else around the advice to younger CK or even the current CK who is who wants to be better at storytelling? Since she probably likes structure, uh-huh. <laughs> um, let me tell you what the structure I use sure. and teach to um, become a storyteller. The first part is exposition. You really got your journalist hat on, the who, what, where. The more detail you give and paint that picture, the more people are in the story. And then you need to describe a problem. Every story has some kind of challenge going on, you also have to realize who's the hero in the story? Is it me or somebody else? Is my role in the story a Sherpa or am I the hero of the story? It's a lot more interesting if you're the Sherpa helping somebody else, so don't make yourself the hero, I would say. Uh, but if you do, you need to figure out how that would relevant to people listening to it. And the better you describe a problem, the better other people think you have their solution. And then you come up with a solution and the secret sauce to any good stories to take is the resolution. And that's what most people don't do. Yeah, so imagine the Wizard of Oz ending when Dorothy got in the balloon to go back to camp and the, the end. We would have lost that whole resolution 
of her back in bed. You were there, and what I learned is there's no place like home, and all of that needs to be in a story, that resolution. What is life like people after they've worked with you or they've hired you? Okay, so like the, the heaven, the picturesque heaven, right? The more concrete you can paint a picture for that. What's it like after they work with you? If you can concretize that more, then you can really draw them in better. Can you give us some more examples of what potential resolutions could look like? Because that work can be mean many things to many people. Sure. I'll give you a couple. I was working with a healthcare tech company, and I was asking them, what are you saying to get people to buy your equipment? Doctors and hospitals, oh, well, our equipment makes the surgery go very fast after. Mm, sounds like it's real to me. <laughs> and I said, there's no story there. And so I pulled out the details. Like, what does it even mean? What's the surgery link without your equipment? Oh, two and a half hours. So 30% fast is what? An hour and a half. All right, so we go to the exposition. Imagine how happy Dr. Higgins is down on the beach from Memorial six months ago. Okay, now we're in the scene. When he's using our equipment and he can go out to the patient's family in the waiting room, and if you've ever been in that situation, every minute feels like an hour. Mm. He came out an hour earlier than expected, tell them the good news that their loved one did not have cancer from the scope surgery and was going to be okay. And then the doctor turned to the Olympus rep and said, that's why I became a doctor, for moments mm -hmm. like that. So now the salesperson tells that story to another doctor, and that doctor sees himself in that story and says, that's why I became a doctor, and I want your equipment too. So the resolution in that story was the doctor saying, that's why I became a doctor. If you just ended with the solution of, but you see how I described that problem in such detail and even pulled you in? Mm. If you've ever been in this situation, now you're really in it. Where you were waiting for somebody you love to try out a surgery, and if that hasn't happened to you in your lifetime, it probably will. Or you certainly know someone who had that experience. Mm. And so that's the empathy part of showing, I really understand what this problem feels like. So the fact that the doctor comes out an hour earlier, he's the hero in this story, and your equipment is the Sherpa that made him the hero, getting to come out an hour early and defeat those family members of that torture. But it's not an overnight, hey, one session with John, let's hone into the heart, the soul of, of this particular story. Can you share with us a little bit about the journey going from, there's a billion things that we can talk about mechanistically, to benefits, to features, get to the soul of a story right there and then, because I'm yeah. sure it's a process. It is a process. In fact, I've turned my book into an online course that takes people through that process in small 10-minute increments and then quizzes them. And then I work with them in a, on a Facebook group where they can practice telling these stories in such a way, because whoever tells that story is the one that's going to win the sale or get hired. It doesn't take as long as you might think. It's obviously not one session, but first is the awareness that you need to become a storyteller. And then 
figuring out how do I take a boring case study and turn it into a case story, or how do I take my own story of origin and make that interesting and compelling so that people want to connect with me. So that story of origin, what made you get into whatever it is you're doing, and the story of origin of your company, the story of origin of Noble Warrior, there's a story there. But your own story of origin, and then you know the story of people you've helped. So first you tell your story, and you tell the story of your company, and it's just a one-person company, and then you tell the story of other people you've helped. So I help people figure out how to tell all of those stories through the whole process of selling so that it makes you magnetic and you don't feel pushy anymore. Magnetic versus pushing. I love that. Yeah, it's a nice contrast, nice visual. Yeah, so if any of you are interested, definitely go to go from invisible to irresistible.com and check out more of that with John. I want to ask you some, let's see, we can go both mechanical or the inner game of it. Let's, let's dance a bit there. Well, let me ask you this. So, how do you refine that sensibility for a good story? Because you obviously, I, how do I articulate it? A, a key part of the skill is the mechanics of storytelling, right? So there's an aspect of it. And certainly a lot of people do want to know more about that. But I'm also curious about the metacognition aspect of it. How do I know that, how do I hone my sensibility for a good story? Because out of a billion stories I could possibly tell, hmm. maybe only a handful that are good stories that would forward my intention the most. So can you share a little bit more about the sensibility of choosing a good story? That's a very common challenge people come to me with. I've got so many stories, I don't know which ones to use or which ones to pick, what word to put them in. And a lot of it has to do with, if you're talking to somebody one-on-one, you want to think of your mind like a beatbox. And you can push certain numbers and letters and put out a certain story at a time. So your goal is to have as many stories as possible ready to go. So in the moment, you can decide which one is the best fit for that person. And if you're presenting in front of a large audience, like I do, then you do a lot of preparation to figure out what their challenges are and figure out which story best solves their problem that they're most likely to see themselves in. So I, I can give you an example of a story. So one of the techniques in storytelling is an open loop. Have you heard that concept before? Yep. So you sort of tease something out, keep them close to it all the time. You know, that's why we keep binge watching. You gotta wait to get out his neck. You wanna start that process as early as possible. And I have people do it when they introduce me. So we, instead of just reading my bio, the introduction is optimized. And they'll say, oh, John's gonna talk to us about when he met Michael Phelps and a lesson he learned that we can apply. That's an open loop. I don't open my topic with my love story, but I do it within the first 10, 15 minutes. And people go, oh, I was waiting for that. Keeps them engaged. Okay. I love that. Since you opened a loop there, to tell us the Michael Phelps story. 
I was waiting to see if you were going to keep that up because I wanted that. It's going to be just launching into it. I wanted people to see me. That's what happens when you create an open loop. People want to close that loop. Mm. There so you you're intriguing them. That's the whole goal. You're going to have a good elevator pitch. So you mm. want to intrigue people enough to say, well, tell me about that. So in this case, listen, if you don't want to hear the microphone today, that's fine. If you're in a, an audience, you're going to tell it. But if it's one-on-one, I could I just give it the open loop enough. You're like, ooh, I would like to hear that. Please. So that's what creates collaborative conversation. Remember, your whole goal is not to just be, oh, I'm a great storyteller. It's to have an emotional connection and a collaborative conversation with everyone, whether it's one person or an audience, hundreds. So I'm curious. So essentially, the open loop is like a hook, right? And you're not attached to any particular hook. You just drop hooks all over the place. And then if they pick it exactly. up, they pick it up. And you let them figure out which one they want to pull down from that toolbox. Yeah. I said three or four things that might intrigue them. I go, what's that? Tell me more about this. And each one of them has a story ready to go in the structure that I've told. Yeah. My, so my question is, how did you select the hook? How did you have developed awareness and sensibility to say, this story is a good hook, <laughs> for example? So that goes with the boundaries of storytelling, which mm-hmm. we've been talking about. How do I find my story, basically, is what I think the question is. And how do I know a story relevant? So a story by itself is not relevant unless there's some resolution to it. That's the first insight. And then there's four kinds of storytelling genres. There's the Rack the Riches, the Cinderella kind of movie. You know, she's poor by the fireplace and then she gets remade and has this wonderful life. And then Oprah, her own personal story is definitely Rags to Riches. And a lot of brands are using this. I was talking to the CMO and 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 pretzels, which is an airport's malls, and I said, how does this all start? Oh, she sold pretzels at one partner's market. Wow, that's a rags to riches story. So that story of origin, using that genre, is one. Another one is Rebirth. It's a Wonderful Life, a holiday Christmas movie. You're like, ooh, you know, I, I do have an impact. I want a, a do-over. Prudential uses this campaign for retired people. This is your third act. It's a rebirth. It's not just a continuation of middle age. So people go, oh. So there's all kinds of genres that you can study and learn and figure out what genre you want to tell, which genre does your brand fit in, and which story. And there's movies that you fit, and there's brands that you fit. So it's a, it's part of learning uh, what all the different genres of storytelling and figure out which genre you want to be telling the story in. What are the other two? <laughs> you said there are four. So. I did. I so, so now I'm intrigued. Please tell me. <laughs> Close the loop. Uh, yes. <laughs> which is the Lord of the Rings movie. Mm-hmm. Right? Lex is one of the taglines with the pursuit of perfection on that quest. And then the fourth one is decide to leave home and have an adventure and then come back and tell everybody about it. That's clearly the Wizard of Oz doing that. 
and Expedia that you did. You know, don't have an adventure, book it on Expedia, and come back and tell all your friends that. Mm. I'm I'm trying on the size, right? What does Noble Warrior fall into? I would say probably more the quest, the hero's journey. This this kaizen, this ever lasting improvement, this pursuit for self actualization and self transcendence definitely is a very archetypal story that we're falling to right here. So, which looks back to what I was saying earlier, which because you fix one issue, oh. I'm only valuable if I look my best. Then another issue comes up for healing. So it's like healing an onion. It's, it's a continuous journey. There is no real destination where you go, I'm totally enlightened. I never have a moment of doubt or fear. Or, I, I'm always happy. And that's just that's not the goal. Yeah, for sure. To me, if someone comes to me that says my life is perfect and I would say to that person, congratulations, and most of us, 99.99999999% of the humans on the planet don't have what you have. Blessings to you. So. <laughs> okay, cool. Thank you for, for sharing that. So if I'm also hearing what you say is, you didn't say this, but you say it implicitly, is you look at life through the lens of stories. So even if you're having regular conversations with people, even if you are watching TVs or uh, mm -hmm. YouTube videos, you look at it through the lens of stories. Is that accurate? Yes, in fact, I work for an ad agency creating commercials for movies. So I really hone my storytelling skills there. I take a two hour movie and have to cut it down to 30 seconds and figure out who's gonna wanna go see this movie based on what scenes we pull out of that 30 seconds. That's what basically an elevator pitch is. Yes, through the problem solution lens is how you move people to engage with you from a selling perspective. And the best way to do that is through telling stories that people see themselves in and that you're the one taking them on that journey. When I was selling advertising for a fashion magazine at Condé Nast, 15 years ago now, I was in my territory, and they were coming out with a line of sportswear. And I went to them and I said, would you consider advertising that in my fashion magazine? They said, no, we're going to be in a sports magazine. And I said, well, what if we tapped into the right brain, imagination, painted a picture, we treated your sportswear like a one-time fashion, and hired models to wear it on a fashion show around the hotel pool, and you could invite Michael Phelps, he's on your payroll as a spokesperson. He was in the middle of his Olympic career during that time. And we get all kinds of publicity for you. And they said, oh, that is, okay, we'll do it. So I got some advertising that wasn't expected, but for me personally, meeting Michael Phelps, the former lifeguard, was thrilling. So I said to him, Michael, everyone says you're such a successful swimmer because you're either like fins and you have a bigger lung capacity than most people, but I'm guessing there's something else. He said, yes, John. When I was young, my coach said to me, Michael, are you willing to work out on Sunday? Yes, coach. Great. We just got 52 more workouts in a year than the competitors. The question becomes, what are you willing to do that your competition isn't? or hasn't even thought to do. 
I love that. That's one of my signature stories. And you can see how it followed the whole the exposition, you know, how that happened, how I happened to meet Michael Phelps. And there's stories within the stories. Obviously, I'm showing a story of me selling somebody something. And the selling techniques within that. They asked me what a question. And then you saw me acting out the dialogue in real time when I'm telling the story. And looking down, I'm the coach. Looking up, I'm young Michael. Back to the coach. All of those are storytelling techniques. Yeah, thank you for illustrating some of the mechanics of it. Because for the untrained eyes, you are just natural at it. But this is very intentional with a lot of the different gesticulations that you did. So I want you can watch um, stand-up comics like Jerry Seinfeld or even Ellen on their one-person Netflix or HBO show, and you'll see them doing that a lot. This is actually perfect because there's a few directions I want to take it. The one of the per oh, let's see. So one of the one of the things that I admire most about Dave Chappelle. Is his ability to focus on the mundane and then just turn it into an hour show, just based on one something that nobody would think was funny, or Louis C.K. or Jerry Seinfeld, or Alan, very similar. So, to me, that's more of a the Olympic level of storytelling because you're just picking something that's super mundane and you're able to look at it through a new lens and do your mechanics and mastery of storytelling. That you're able to actually just make the whole stadium laugh and so forth. What's your take on that? I'm curious. You know, when you see someone as a master storytelling yourself, how? What's your visceral reaction when you see them able to pick something super mundane and just make something a whole huge story out of it? One of the reasons why a lot of comics use air travel as a story they use is because most people have been on a plane, and so they're constantly searching for what is something everyone's experienced. And yet, if I look at it through a different lens, it seems a little crazy. So something as simple as, "Oh my God, do we really still need someone to show us how to buckle a seatbelt at this point in our lives?" Oh, we've all experienced that. But yet, when a comedian points something out like that, it seems a little absurd. Right? So that you're looking for something that seems relatively mundane and looking at it through a different lens of why is this something that we still need to talk about or be shown? What planet? What have you ever met a person that didn't know how to do that? What generated that idea in the first place? Did they suddenly just be a bunch of people struggling and said one day, oh my God, we got to struggle, but they do this. So there's this one little thing, just, we just keep asking more and more questions about what else is funny, if this is funny. I actually interviewed a standard comic, and I was talking about the opening to one of my talks, which is about um, the first thing I do every morning is take a cold shower. It burns fat, it, uh, reduces inflammation to fight depression. And I said, actually, it had me burn fat. <laughs> and then I took the lap, okay? Mm. And as I was 
working on that, I actually was telling a friend that. And when I met, actually it had me at Burns Fat, I just spontaneously said that to him and he laughed. And I thought, huh, I wasn't trying to be funny, I was just being me. I wonder if it would be funny if I had an audience. And then I was talking to the humor stand-up specialist, and he said, we would really test it, like you would an app, and say, would it be funnier if I'd say burn fat at the end, or in the middle, or at the beginning? And then here's the technique I think you really like, you taught me, which is, if this is funny, what else is funny? So after I say that, actually it had me burn fat, people laugh, I said, you know, so now I don't even work out anymore, all I do is take three cold showers a day. <laughs> that's funny. I like that. But that was, that's the, there was a process to it, yes? I see. So if that's funny, it must be funny. So what I'm hearing between the lines, again, I, wanna, I don't want to project, but I want to make sure I'm, 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 I'm catching everything that you're saying here. Mm-hmm. So be open. One, just be yourself, throw things out there, and then also pay attention to what generated the intended outcome that you have, whether it's being inspiring or getting a laugh or getting that sale, whatever, mm-hmm. pay attention to that and use that as data point to further extrapolate what else, if this is funny, what else is funny? If this is effective, this is, you know, achieve the intention that I want, what else along the same line? Can I exaggerate certain things or extrapolate a little bit more or ask a different question to achieve even a bigger outcome? Is that accurate? Mm -hmm. So I love the fact that you use that so did you actually do uh, stand-up comedy for, for a little bit as a way to test your storytelling skills? I'm curious. So I was in theater and I did a little bit of improv and ironically, for those who don't know, improv is all about yes and. You don't judge, you shut something down. And uh, Adam Insurance was interviewing me versus the speaker. And you have to sell yourself <laughs> to get hired. And I asked them a question, which was, if I get hired to be your speaker and open this two-day summit, what else is happening after I speak? And they said, oh, at the end of the first day, we're going to have an improv session. People are going to be on stage, pretending to be the doctor, pretending to be the people in the audience, are going to shout out objections and see how they do in an improv session. And I said, my two words, what if? I stayed. And would be on stage with them during the improv, and I could whisper in their ear if they got stuck, something I'd said in my talk to keep the conversation going. I look at the objection. They said, Oh my God, we never even thought of asking anybody to do that. But I went from just being interesting and maybe a little intriguing to being irresistible. Because I present, I did the Michael Phelps thing. I, I offered them something my competitors either weren't willing to do because they wanted to get on this plane out or hadn't thought to do. Mm, I love that. And then when it happened, they said, oh my God, can you be in my ear all the time when I'm in the field? You really are the pitch with I love that. So now that's getting to, is this what you naturally do as a way to see where you can add value anytime, anywhere, any place with anyone? Yes. I teach people how to go from invisible to irresistible. Mm-hmm. 
and the importance of realizing where you are on that ladder and constantly asking myself, okay, I'm just interesting right now. They are talking to me. <clears throat> what can I do to get in treatment? What can I do to become irresistible? So I'm walking my talk. And sometimes that's future facing somebody. You've heard that concept, I'm sure. Uh, go ahead and go ahead and elaborate for uh, for our listeners. Yeah, so you did it in the reverse. If I'm talking to my younger self, I do it. Let's imagine we're having a conversation a week after the event. What would have to happen for you to really stand and happy that this was the best one ever? Mm. And then they start picturing themselves in that. In fact, from a practical standpoint, I've, I've worked with people interviewing uh, for a job, and that's all about telling a story and taking your experience and turning it into a story and then asking that question when it comes to the end of the interview when they say, do you have any questions for us? Unfortunately, a lot of young people think, oh, how much vacation time do I get and when is it started? So the new question I get people is, what would it look like if I was to exceed your expectations in this job? I had somebody get hired on the spot because you're not saying you're someone who goes above a gun. You're having them visualize yourself in a job already. Mm. And then having them visualize what it looks like to exceed expectations, and they probably haven't even thought about that. But they just come up with the format of here's what the job requirements are. The fact that you're asking that question shows me instead of telling me that you're going to go above and beyond the minimum. And that's what, that's what we want. The skills we can teach, we want the mindset of that. I. That was very ninja. I, I love that. I, I really do. Part of, I, I'm a connoisseur of questions because I, I truly believe that the quality of life is a direct reflection of the quality of the questions that we ask. Mm-hmm. And if we ask shitty questions, we're going to have shitty life. And then I ask great questions, we're going to have a much better life, right? So hence why the podcast is all about asking questions. What does it take to have a life of purpose, joy, and, and meaning, right? And because that's a much better question is, why does the world suck? <laughs> so I love that question. That was very, very ninja. That was awesome. I, I, I just, I, I love it. So I'm curious, as a fellow podcast host, and this is something that I'm having an inquiry of. I wanted to have a, a, a public inquiry with you. The way I see it in the beginning was, hey, how do I you know, use this as a way to attract an audience? Some, people, some other noble warriors who was on this, this quest mm-hmm. you know, with me. And then it dawned on me that, hey, I've had 90 people who is on this quest path already who are thought leaders in their own right who are also how do I actually create value for them so I'm curious to know I know that you've been on this journey as a podcast host since 2018 if I recall correctly you've done hundreds you know hundreds yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's amazing I'm curious to know how if we frame it as a, you, you have had relationship with the random plus people who are thought leaders in their own also want to you know, use storytelling as a way to advance other people's lives and their own life and also share a positive message with the world who's committed on that path. How are you being the hub and spoke, right? And adding, or how could you rather yeah. add more value 
to this network of beautiful human beings that you have gathered? Mm. One of the things I did is I turned 10 of my favorite episodes into a book. Mm. And I called it the same. The book is called The Successful Pitch, just like the podcast. Mm-hmm. And all the guests that I asked if I could take the transcripts from the episode and turn it into a chapter said yes. And then they helped promote the book. So they loved it because they got their message out in another format. I also take the transcripts from that episode and turn it into a LinkedIn article. So they've got content without having to write a word. They can post on their website and share it to their LinkedIn community. And then, of course, it's the right introductions. You know, keeping all those people in my head so that, like a jukebox again, when someone says, no, I'm looking for someone who does this, that's why it's so important to have great elevator pitch so people instantly know who you help and what problem you solve. Oh, you need to meet this person. So you become the hub, as you described, that connects all of your guests to what they are looking for. So I've interviewed a lot of investors, and they said, listen, if people hired you to help them with their pitch, you know what I like to invest in, I'll take the meeting. Great, that's a win for everybody. I interviewed a lot of speaking bureaus who represent me, because I created content for them to help them distinguish themselves from other bureaus. It becomes a PR tool. So there's a lot of different ways you can um, provide value for your guests. I love that. How did you, by the way, John, how did you hone into this particular profession or dharma or path mm-hmm. or this thing that you want to focus on? Hey, I'm going to double down on storytelling slash sales as a way to hone as my X factor, as my superpower. I think we have to go back and get the whole picture sure. for it to be relevant. Yes. So I majored in advertising. I loved the entertainment aspect of it combined with the business aspect of it. I was fascinated by what motivated people, persuaded people to either take an action or take brands or whatever it was. And then I started my career selling these multi-million dollar computers and really learn the basics of selling a big competitor like IBM and realize that it wasn't just about having something that was less expensive or more reliable or faster. There's a lot of psychological issues going on. So back then, if you bought something that wasn't IBM, they would point the finger at the other vendor and say, it's their fault this thing went down and you're going to get fired for bringing that other vendor in. I was like, wow, it's not just not bringing decision-making here. And then working for the ad agency, learning about converting movies into commercials, and convincing other studios to hire our agency that we were, quote, a better storyteller and having a story of that. Um, a movie we take that didn't do well theatrically, but we helped in home video. And then selling advertising for all these different um, brands and explaining the editor's vision and their voice and how that attracted a certain kind of reader that would then fit whatever that launch of that car was or what that gene company was trying to do. And so it was always a few that lens of storytelling and, and I just realized that the better I told stories, the more likely I was to get a sale. And in fact, 
unless it's an agency with what they call media editing, and they invite multiple salespeople to come in and pitch. If they don't talk to us about the numbers, we've already looked that up. That's why you're in the final selection. What's the story, an idea, a concept? How are you going to help this work beyond just the ad and the magazine? So all of those things combine to go, oh, I need to connect the dots. And when I was selling, I thought I've had three separate careers, tech, advertising, entertainment business, and now ad sales. And then they said, you know, there's a thing called the internet, and we're going to just start putting website addresses on our ad, and advertising is going to start Anybody know anything about technology? And uh, I do. And then, oh, we're not going to just put models on magazines of fashion, and we're going to put celebrities. Anybody have an entertainment background? Oh, I do. So all of these experiences are so siloed contribute to making you better wherever you are. And now the last seven years or so, it's all been about, oh, I see a problem that I can solve, especially for tech people, and especially for people in the healthcare industry, that they're not telling stories, and they don't aren't aware that they need to, and then they don't know how to, and once they do, they start winning new business, and that's my niche. So it's just it's a continual process, just like the speaking gets better and better. Your laser focus of who I help and what problem I solve, having stories ready to go, like the one I gave you, Olympus, 30% faster turning into that heartwarming story that when people, when you target people's heart strings, they open their first strings. Yeah. There's so much I can go into. For someone who is listening to this, right, because you had talked about a lot of the external, the circumstances shift, how you hone your skills in advertising, in entertainment, in sales, as a way to hone yourself as a polymath of storytelling. But I also wanted to hone in on the inner journey aspect of it, from the unconscious competence to conscious, you know, in, sorry, unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence. There's a journey of, I don't know if I could do it, right? There's a jump of doing that. Could you share with us a little bit about, let's see, how would I ask this question in a, in a better way? What beliefs are required? What new mindset did you need to take on as a way to continue to walk down the path of being a master storyteller? First belief, myth that you have to let go of is that if people get to know and trust you, they'll buy from you. You've heard that forever. And the problem is that behavior that people have to get to know me before they trust or like me causes me to push out a bunch of information me and my company and my product. And, and the second myth is people don't buy love. They buy emotionally and then back up the project. Oh. So what do I need to do to fix those two myths? You have to start with trust, which is a gut thing. That's where the handshake, remember when we used to take hands? Show that you didn't have a weapon in your hand. So you need to build trust. 
Then it goes to the heart, do I like it? <clears throat> Let me show that through empathy. And then it goes to the head, and it's still not about pushing out information. The unspoken question people have is, will this work for me? If they can't see it work for themselves, they won't buy it. So that's why storytelling is invaluable, because when people see themselves in the story, they go, oh, well, this would work for me, because I see myself in that story. I see. So the story embedded the trust, the like, and the, what was the other one? The head. Knowing. Right? The knowing. Got hard head, yeah. I like that. I'm definitely a a convert for sure. I'm on my path to be a a master storyteller. One of the things that I'm also curious about is, and this is something I'm trying to articulate the best that I can. So in startup land, there is product market fit. But what's even more important is founder market fit like mm-hmm. why you so in my mind translating that similar concept to stories are there stories storyteller fit that you think about so for example i'll give you a great example i'm really passionate about understanding what it takes to have a fulfilling life but do i embody fulfillment and and passion i don't think so but it's a problem I'm really passionate in solving because as an overachiever, if I don't focus on it, it, I have seen many times the end of the tunnel and there's no cheese in the end. Mm. And I realized that achievement is no way, no means to have a great life. It is a part of it, but it's not the whole equation. So if I want to ultimately optimize for a fulfilling life, I gotta focus on that versus trying to achieve something as a proxy to have achievement. My point of sharing all of that is, do I embody fulfillment? I don't think so. I'm not the Dalai Lama. I'm not the happiest monk, you know, with the EEG hooked on my, my, my brain to say that. So I'm curious to know, as a advisor, as a super coach, as someone who, is, who wants to hone their story, do you, think about story, storyteller fit at all? Or is that something that's a relevant thing that you don't even think about? We have a couple concepts here. The why you is definitely what the story version answers. And if you bend in the shoes of the people who you're helping, then the investors think, oh, you have empathy, but you really understand this problem better than everybody else. That's what gives you the expertise to solve it. So that's one part of that. The other part of it is people are either internally motivated or externally motivated to take action. So when I was working with Lexus and they were launching, they said, we don't have the history that BMW and Mercedes does. And some of those buyers buy because they need to impress their friends with the logos and brag about owning it. But there's a whole other group of people that are internally motivated that buy it because the workmanship or the craftsmanship or because it's fun to drive. And they don't really care what the label is. They make their decisions for themselves. And that's who we need to target to put Lexus on that short list of cars that they're going to consider. Mm. 
And so my job was to convince them that the fashion advertisers of big bragging like Gucci and <clears throat> Versace had the same thing. People bought it for the label, people bought that purse or shoe for their workmanship and because they liked it for themselves and they weren't trying to impress people with it. And so the, the premise of that awareness of why we take action and how achievement falls into that is, I think, really important for your own personal growth. Am I achieving this because I need to have all this certain number of listeners or monetizing this way for me to feel like it was a worthy endeavor? Or am I internally motivated to interview people, to build my network and learn from them and get like a master class from them and possibly contribute some way back to them and that's how I'm defining success. And then you're totally free from looking outside of yourself to decide if you're happy or successful. You do. When you shift it to, I'm happy now, not as soon as I do this many episodes or as soon as I sell this many books or as soon as I make this much money. Because as you said, it's empty because once you achieve something like you did, it's okay, what's next, what's next? So you just gotta get off that as soon as mental game. As soon as I get this, then I'll be happy. It, it doesn't last very long. Yeah, for sure. It's a lesson that I had to learn many times, right? The, in order to, that once I get this, then I'll be X, right? For happy or whatever. And just try that many times and then say it's a tunnel with no cheese in the end. And I realized like, oh, okay, I gotta, really got to change my whole mindset around it. So these days for me is, am I enjoying this in this very moment? I'm enjoying my time with John versus I'll be satisfied when I hit X. And that's just, I think Jim Carrey said it so well in his commencement speech. He says, the likelihood, life is full of failures. The probability is really high of failing. You might as well go after what you really love. That's the new paradigm that I'm operating from. Focusing on the process, yeah. not the destination, because the destination you never get there. You probably won't. So I appreciate that. Very cool, man. So one, a few more questions. So as a master storyteller, now you have a story. You have honed in your why. You have honed in your what. You have honed in your deliverable. You have honed in the beats of the story. How do you then take what you have as a story and ride the waves of the guest of the time because I'm assuming, projecting, correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. now you have this tool that you can ride the waves of the media and just say I'm relevant because of here and that and the other thing. I'm mm -hmm. curious now how you find relevance to what's happening in our day. I can give you two examples. Last September, a year ago, I got interviewed by when it was back to school time. And it was like, John Linda says here to help parents get more than one word answers from their kid when they say, How was your day? They typically say, Fine or okay. And I said, Ask your child, tell me a story about the best part of your day. It's not a one word answer. And they can decide at the beginning, before they got to school, what happened to school, or on the way home. 
And then you can tell them a story about the best part of your day and bond that way. And so since you love questions so much, that's, that's how they, I got publicity for my book and me by tapping into what's going on, kids are back to school, kids the problem parents are having, and you wonder what answers, there's a solution that's nice down by, an easy takeaway. Yeah. <clears throat> the other example is, as I talked about going from invisible to irresistible, in the middle of that rock is interesting. And I had said to my publicist, oh, you know, it's like being stuck at the present zone at work. So many salespeople get excited. Oh, oh they're interested, they want more material, and they'll never buy. <clears throat> and they said, oh, can you come up with three ways to tell that you're stuck at the friend zone at work? Three ways to get out, and Dick Pratt and both Fortune and Inc. Magazine wrote articles on and interviewed me. Do you need to get some more water? <clears throat> I think we're good. Okay. So, what's happening right now is the election, right? What's happening right now is COVID. How would you <clears throat> parlay the stories that you have as a way to write that media way to help more people tell better stories? The pandemic has created a problem for especially healthcare. So people who were disabled were walking to doctor's offices or catching doctor between surgeries at the hospital, and now they can't do that. So that's, they have a new need. They need some help on crafting an email to request a virtual meeting. And if you've never had to do it, you need to know how to do it. And then even if you get the virtual meeting, you don't know how to look and sound good on Zoom. Your lighting's not good, your mic's not good, uh, your camera's not good, you get nervous speaking on camera versus in person. So those two things alone have created a huge need for companies to hire me to help them with just those two things alone, let alone then going out and help them tell better stories to me. Got it. I, I guess I'm, I'm asking is the way to think about it, the meta, the metacognition. How, a few, so a few clarifying points here. How do you find as a guest at the time? One, two is then how do you find the correlation between the story that you already have and the service that you provide and so on and so forth to what you found as a guest? Can you share with us a little bit about how you think about a way to find the relevance? It's talking to people and asking them questions. What frustrates you most about your kids coming home from school? Or what's the biggest challenge your sales team is fixing during the COVID? Getting a virtual meeting. Okay. Now I know that's a problem. Talk to some other people. You struggling with this too? Yes. Okay. Now we know it's not just one company struggle. And then from there you create a solution. I see. Get curious, ask questions, what are your biggest problems? Oh, so on that note, how do you... Because it's easy for them to say the obvious, right? I'm struggling sales, I want more leads. These are some of the indicators, the symptoms. How do you get to what they're really struggling with? Because they may not necessarily feel safe enough to share with you what they're really struggling with. They maybe share with you some of the symptoms that's a little bit more okay to share. Does that make sense? How do you get to the 
Or you tell a story of another client, and Mm. and you say, does that sound like anything that you can relate to? And then they go, oh, yeah, we saw ourselves in that. A lot of our sales teams are in silos, and they're not communicating with each other, but it makes it really hard for us to um, go to a hospital or a doctor that's only using one of our services and let them know we do other things because we don't know how to break those silos down. And you're telling us that storytelling can do that? Then we're intrigued to know more. Your your whole goal is to intrigue people to get the next conversation. Mm, Got it. The next step versus Mm -hmm. the whole shebang and the first thing. Uh, Do you mind staying on for for a few more minutes for some rapid fire questions? Is that cool? Sure. Awesome, very good. You sure you don't want to get some water? I'm good. Okay, excellent. Oh, I'm good, dude. Wonderful. So, rapid fire questions. Movies have shifted the way that you look at reality. Shawshank Redemption, on so many levels, that we can put our body in prison but not our mind. We can be accused of something we didn't do and not get resentful. The concept of perseverance, concept of friendship, and the need to reinvent ourselves. And most people get out of prison and they miss the structure and are miserable. Um, so, mm-hmm. all those, so many great lessons in that move. I love it. Thank you. What's your definition of purpose? My definition of purpose is knowing why I want to get out of bed in the morning beyond making money or survival. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. What's your definition of fulfillment? My definition of fulfillment is when I get feedback from people and I see a light bulb moment happen when they learn something about storytelling or they tell me that storytelling has benefited them personally, not just in their career, that really makes me feel uh, happy. Thank you. What's your definition of wealth? My definition of wealth is beyond money. Wealth of friends, wealth of health, just an overall abundance of everything that allows me to create and contribute. Mm, Beautiful. What do you do to not take yourself too seriously? (laughs) Why am I family for that? Uh, (laughs) I was working with a relatively famous uh, rock and roll drummer on helping him with his stories and he wrote me this email and he said, oh, you're a badass. You know, this is somebody who wears tattoos and sunglasses all the time. And you know, that was never my crowd in school. And so I sent my sister that comment with a link to his website. And she sent me back a thing of Bobby Brady from the Brady Bunch, manically playing the drums. You're about as badass as Bobby Brady was in the Brady Bunch. So <laughs> that, that keeps me <laughs> not taking myself too seriously. Keeps you humble. How do you do that in the moment, though? In, the, in how some service things or the circumstances happen, how do you just, oh, okay, it's, it's part of this impermanence, right? 
it's the I think uh, in your talk you said the fluidity of life. How do you when serious circumstances happen, how do you just not take it so seriously and just flow with it? I have my five 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 exercise. Your what Will exercise? Will this bother me in five minutes? Will this bother me in five days? Or five weeks from now? I zoom out. Mm. And I keep going. Okay, five months? Five years? <laughs> uh, usually by then it's, oh, it's not going to bother me in the big picture. Mm. Thank you. Beautiful. In the last five years, what new beliefs, behavior, or habit have most improved your life? Hmm. I would say the biggest thing would be to stop comparing myself to other people. Um, that gives me a whole sense of freedom of I deserve to be here, I have something of value, people want to pay for it. I don't have to audition or try so hard. That who I am is enough and the right people find me from all kinds of ways without me having to stress out about if I'm doing everything perfectly. That's beautiful. What is the book, other than yours, that you've given most as a gift and why? Probably the four agreements. It's just the one about don't take anything personally. Is and then go oh, do your best. All right, those are just those two alone is enough to help most people get unstuck. I love that, John. I wanted to take a few minutes to really acknowledge you for how you've shown up in our conversation from. The first times that we've met, the first few times that we've met, what's really clear to me watching you coaching people through their pitch is your sincerity to really help them unleash this idea, this desire that they so desperately want to share with the world. And you do it with kindness, you do it with grace, you do it with elegance, and you do it with just the deep listening so that you are also able to articulate what they're really trying to say. And I just want you to know that from a noble warrior to another, that I see you, I see the work that you do, and the mastery that you have in helping people uncover their story. And thank you for the, the work that you've done. Thank you for the way that you showed up in this conversation. I know that I tend to get a little philosophical, but your, your willingness to dance with me in this conversation is, is magnificent. So thank you so much for being here and share with your wisdom and your stories and your tactics with my audience. My pleasure. Thanks for that kind acknowledgement. I think we all want to be seen and heard and acknowledged, and that's the best gift of kindness we can ever give. Oh, thank you. I received that with a lot of gratitude. Very good. Oh, but one last thing I forgot to mention. So, for guys, so for those of you who are interested, who are committed to actually taking action to hone their storytelling skills. Go to John's website, go from invisible to irresistible.com. You can get his course and better selling through storytelling. Thanks, John, yes, for being here. If you want to get a free gift for me, take out your phone and text the word pitch, P-I-T-C-H, for this number, 66866, 
and I'll send you a free PDF of my top storytelling tips. Amazing. Thank you, John.